Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning, everyone joining us. Um, I'm Jeff Smith, a research fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, for those of you who have been fed up with news about COVID-19 and rioting and, and looting and protesting and China-India border issues, uh, I've heard your call for different content. And uh, I'm happy today to bring you an event on the India-US nuclear deal to talk a little bit about the India-US strategic partnership and one of the foundations of that strategic partnership. I think uh, most people in Washington today with a pulse probably know that India and the US have uh, really dramatically transformed their relationship over the past 20 or so years. Um, a transformation that began in the George W. Bush administration um, at first with the um, Vajpayee administration in, in Delhi, and then really accelerated things with the UPA government under uh, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh. One of the major catalysts for that transformation uh, at the outset was a civil nuclear deal or a one, two, three deal, an agreement that was reached uh, in 2005 uh, alongside a 10 year defense partnership agreement. And that civil nuclear deal was a pretty uh, dramatic step at the time. It was pretty unprecedented for a country that had not been a signatory to the nuclear non-proliferation treaty uh, to be essentially recognized as an accepted nuclear power. Um, that was a major step that the Bush administration thought it would take to help cement strategic trust between the US and India. I think they saw it as a way to recognize that India had a uh, reasonably good record on nuclear issues. And so it began, a quite a, as you'll see, quite a long process of establishing a legal framework for nuclear trade between the US and India, but also bringing uh, India into the international nuclear regulatory regime, uh, a process that's frankly still ongoing. Now, uh, this agreement was not without controversy. Uh, it does have many supporters, many people who thought it um, took many important steps toward establishing that trust between India and the US. Uh, but there were also concerns about the non-proliferation implications. Um, there were concerns that the benefits to U.S. nuclear industry uh, might have been oversold during this deal. Um, and so what I thought we would do today is bring on a panel of three uh, very distinguished guests from across the policy uh, spectrum, several people who 
frankly had important roles in the nuclear deal at, at, at the initial stages at the outset and folks who have worked on these issues in the 15 years since. So um, this is my first webinar. I hope you'll bear with me uh, as we move through the guest speakers, but I'm gonna ask Ambassador Richard Verma, Mr. Ted Jones, uh, and Dr. Ashley Tellis to speak with us today for about seven to eight minutes each. And then I thought we would move to a question and answer session and a little bit more of, um, of an interactive discussion. So I've, I've uh, asked Ambassador Verma to, to speak first. He's just joined us now. Uh, Ambassador Verma is the vice chair and partner uh, at the Asia Group, where he leads the firm's growth uh, in South Asia. He previously served as the U.S. Ambassador to India from 2014 to 2017. Prior to that was the Assistant Secretary of State for Legislative Affairs. And before that, and during the uh, critical formative stages of this nuclear deal, he was a National Security Advisor to Senate Majority Leader uh, Harry Reid. So he was in the Senate for the hatching of the agreement. And it was, uh, from what I remember at times, uh, quite a contentious endeavor one that was not always uh, saw guaranteed success. So Rich, I thought, you know, here at the 15 year anniversary, I thought maybe you could look back um, on the US-India nuclear deal and give us some thoughts about what it was like getting that deal done. What was it in its importance uh, to the India-US strategic partnership? And then has it um, met the expectations that were set out at the time? Was, was the deal worth it? Um, do we need a new nuclear deal looking forward? We're, um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on these questions. And uh, after that, I'm gonna tee up Mr. Ted Jones. But for now, I'm gonna take myself off camera and cede the floor to you, Rich. Great, Jeff, thank you very much, appreciate it. And Jeff, just make sure you can hear me okay? Yep, sound great. Okay, great. Um, I really appreciate the invitation uh, to be here. I think this is a really uh, timely and important event. Uh, and I want to thank Heritage. Uh, you know, Jeff, when you serve in government, you rely on outside uh, think tanks and academic partners and civil society partners to provide good ideas to those people serving in government. And uh, Heritage has done that uh, over the years so much. I, in fact, I remember when I was serving as ambassador, uh, you all came into the embassy in Delhi and talked about the importance of the of a two plus two dialogue uh, with India, which is now uh, in place. So we'll give that uh, credit to the to the team at uh, at Heritage. I'm also really happy to be here with with Ted, who's done a lot of great work <clears throat> on India over the years on, on nuclear uh, power, and with my friend Ashley Tellis. When I think about Ashley's work, um, I really consider Ashley to be the modern architect of US-India strategic relations. And in fact, I don't think it's an overstatement to say over the last 20 years, there's been no one more important in US-India strategic relations than Dr. Ashley Tellis. So it's great to be with him on the, on the panel. Um, let, me, let me start out uh, with one observation about the civil nuclear deal, because I know we have, a, we have an interesting timeline that shows 2005 forward, and, and that's when I was in the Senate, and we're gonna pick up the conversation there. But I, I just wanna remind people that history didn't start in 2005, and I think some context here is important because 
2005 would not have been possible without the events that came before it. And let me just mention four uh, events or developments that I think led to the civil nuclear deal, and we shouldn't forget about it. Uh, the first is really a, a Clinton administration and Clinton era policy of dehyphenating uh, India and Pakistan. And that came out of the, at the, in 1999, coming out of Cargill, the frustrations that President Clinton felt towards the Pakistani uh, leadership as they started a conflict and then demanded that Kashmir be part of the resolution. And, and Clinton finally said, enough, we're not, we're not gonna treat the two countries. And this had been happening over a period of time, but it was the kind of straw that broke the back. So dehyphenization actually started in 1999 and was kind of officially in place for President Clinton's visit in 2000. The second uh, event, and this occurs over a period of time, is obviously the rise of China. One only has to look at China's uh, GDP increase from, from 1960 to 2005. No country has grown quicker and more dramatic fashion than China did over that period. And it certainly captured the attention of the US, of the Indian government in a way that I think had not been in such sharp focus before. So we, we have dehyphenization, we have the dramatic rise of, of China. Uh, third, I would say, as you come into the early 2000s, uh, you know, think about it, the, the US is in a fairly tough position. This is post 9-11, we, we have hundreds of thousands of troops in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, we have the rise of China, we are in desperate need of a partner at this particular juncture. And so the thought of embracing India and try to figure out how to develop our relationship further is really important. And it's really important to US uh, security interests. And the final thing I would say is that, um, you know, with our election in the year 2000 and the change in our attitude towards uh, non-proliferation regimes, specifically, the Bush administration was not insistent on, in fact, was opposed to the two treaties that had dominated the kind of US posture towards South Asia since 1972, the Conventional Test Ban Treaty and the Non-Proliferation Treaty. CTBT and NPT were the cornerstones of various US administration's policies, specifically towards India. That no longer is the case as we get into uh, the 2005 period. Now, as you get, so this allows us to develop a, a broader, more ambitious policy towards India. And I, Ashley, I, I hope we'll say something about this, but it's really, he's, when I say he's the architect of the modern US-India relationship, he tells us this is really what we call strategic altruism or strategic benevolence. The basic, uh, the basic theory is that a strong and prosperous India is not only good for India, but it's good for the United States too. And it doesn't just mean a strong military or a growing GDP, it means India as a democracy, because this is about presenting a countervailing view and countervailing vision to what the Chinese were pushing across the Indo-Pacific. And that is what leads to the ability to walk in to senators and members of the house and say, we are gonna dramatically upend the non-proliferation regime and the framework 
uh, to do this deal with India. And so that context is, is really important. I'll just make two uh, closing thoughts. And, and I, I agree with all those who have said that this deal was about far more than civil nuclear cooperation. And let me, let me list four things very quickly as to what this deal was about, because it's about far more than fuel or civil nuclear technologies. The first, it was about accepting India as a nuclear weapons power. Think about that. It was de facto es establishing and accepting India as a nuclear weapons power. That was a tectonic shift in US policy. Second, it was about a writing of the international system and giving India what it has wanted, which was a seat at the high table. And we were able to go in, break the international nonproliferation architecture, we thought for good reasons, and get the 36 members of the national uh, nuclear suppliers group to go along with us. Now, we were able to do that because we were at the kind of pinnacle of US power and whether we could still pull that off today, I think is a question we should all revisit. But so it was accepting India as a nuclear weapons power and it was writing the international system on India's behalf, which went a long way to repairing a lot of the damage from the, six, from the late 60s and early 70s in our relationship. Third, it was about getting Congress and the diaspora fully engaged and involved in the US-India partnership. When we talk about having all elements of our government and all members of our population involved, kind of what we think of as the modern relationship for US-India, Congress was fully involved in a way that had not been in its history, except negatively, that Congress was involved in the past in imposing sanctions or limiting uh, uh, weapons or selling weapons to Pakistan. This time, Congress was positively involved. And I will tell you, Having been a Senate staffer there, the diaspora community came out like never before. And finally, it was important because we got to see what it means to be natural allies, the term that multiple Indian prime ministers have uttered and US presidents have uttered. But here we got to see what it means to be a, the natural allies without the alliance. How do we work together? How do our parliaments work together? How do we work together on clean energy? on uh, reshaping the international architecture. And so it was about all those things and probably more. Was it the most important event in US-India relations? I Probably not, but it is probably in the, in the top five. And we can talk about what some of those other uh, aspects are. But I do think clean energy uh, is one of the kind of building blocks of our future cooperation. And I look forward to that aspect of the discussion as well. So Jeff, I will, uh, I will stop there with those opening comments. Yeah, thank you. Uh, let me get back on here. Th Rich, thank you so much uh, for those comments. And thank you for the kind words about heritage. Uh, you know, we have been big boosters of the strategic partnership uh, for many years. Uh, the two plus two, you know, the quad is something that we've been a strong proponent of. And frankly, it's been a joy in, in a sense, working on India-US relations in Washington, because it is one of the few areas where there has been a, a, a real bipartisan consensus, where we do work very well across the aisle on this, on something that I think we all believe is in America's national interest, is uh, frankly, in both of our countries' interest to strengthen this partnership 
uh, and in the interest of, of regional and global security. So Rich, thank you so much. I look forward to bringing you back on um, at the back end for this discussion. Uh, next up, we have um, a different perspective uh, from Mr. Ted Jones, who is the Director for National Security and International Programs at the Nuclear Energy Institute. Uh, uh, Ted was at the U.S. India Business Council from 2005 to 2010 during the formative years of the U.S. India nuclear deal, uh, where he directed the uh, industry advocacy effort. And in the 10 years since, he's been at the uh, NEI, at the Nuclear Energy Institute, working on nuclear trade um, with all markets. So he has uh, really ground level, hands-on experience with nuclear issues. Um, really some fantastic perspective, uh, unique perspective that he'll bring. And Ted, really looking forward to hearing your remarks and then uh, circling back with you um, for Q&A. So Ted, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Jeff, for the kind introduction. Can you hear me okay? So, sound great. Okay. Um, I, I want to echo uh, Ambassador Verma's compliments to the Heritage Foundation. Yeah, I, as long as I've worked on India policy issues, Heritage has been a, a real thought leader, uh, certainly from the inception of the Civil Nuclear Accord of Walter Lohman, Lisa Curtis, and others. Um, among your colleagues have provided really uh, important guidance. So it's appropriate that you're marking the anniversary of the Civil Nuclear Accord. Uh, thank you for including the nuclear industry perspective in the discussion. I feel sometimes that <clears throat> does get lost um, because the, the, the deal had so uh, many, continues to have so many uh, strategic um, ramifications. Um, <clears throat> And thank you for including me personally. Uh, it's an honor to be on this panel with Ambassador Verma and Dr. Tellis, who I, uh, both of whom I much admire. Um, uh, like I say, that we, we we need to that we do need to recall that there were nuclear cooperation commitments in the deal. Um, I think as a reminder of the unrealized potential of the accord, um, India. <clears throat> Uh, did make some important commitments uh, on the eve of congressional consideration of the deal, which were widely shared um, by us in industry and, and others on the Hill to persuade a lot of members that this is in the economic as well as the strategic interest of the United States. Um, they, India made sovereign commitments to procure 10,000 megawatts of U.S. nuclear technology uh, deployed on two sites and to adopt global nuclear liability norms uh, consistent with the Convention on Supplementary Compensation. And from our perspective in the U.S. nuclear industry, neither of those commitments has been fulfilled 15 years uh, later. Um, it's true that the closer defense and strategic ties have provided important benefits. I, I wouldn't deny that. But there are multiple US economic and national security interests in holding in India accountable to its commercial commitments. <clears throat> From a national security perspective, when India deploys US equipment and technology, that makes the US trade controls relevant in India. 
U.S. Uh, controls on the re-export and, and use of nuclear energy technology, as well as uh, U.S. controls over the disposition of used fuel, go beyond any other nuclear energy supplier country in the world. And they only come into play when, when India builds a nuclear power plant with U.S. equipment or uses U.S. fuel in that plant. Uh, th this is why India became, uh, you know, was caught in a real bind after um, after its its, its uh, first test in the 70s, uh, because U.S. cut off cooperation and the U.S. reactors at Tarapur um, couldn't uh, for a while be supplied uh, with the U.S. fuel. So we we get meaningful stakes for adherence to nuclear non-proliferation and security commitments in our 123 agreement when India actually deploys the U.S. equipment and technology. It also deepens the ties between our, our industries and not just our industries, but the universities, our labs, our regulators, and I think uh, strengthens um, the, the norms for nuclear security, uh, non-proliferation, and nuclear safety uh, in India and everywhere else that we might be working together. Um, economically, um, there are some obvious benefits. If we are able to export uh, six nuclear power plants uh, to Kavada, that is uh, a value running well into the billions of, of dollars. Um, this would give needed momentum to a U.S. industry that needs to access the global market in order to remain viable. Not so obvious are some of the mutual economic benefits that a U.S.-India nuclear energy partnership can create. Uh, in, in a way, um, you know, Ambassador Verma mentioned the, 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 the natural allies we're also natural allies in this industry the u.s is the the uh the largest nuclear energy generating country um we operate uh close to 100 plants and have world-leading operational expertise we're also continuing to innovate in nuclear energy and as the next generation of nuclear energy technologies is coming to the market the U.S. and India, which brings um, world-class engineering, um, low-cost manufacturing, and also a ready market, um, we can partner in the deployment of these new technologies in India, in the U.S., and around the world. And I think because of our shared values, we can be nuclear energy suppliers uh, of these technologies that uh, will not leverage uh, the supply for foreign policy interests that we disagree with. Right now, Russia and soon China will be the dominant suppliers uh, in the nuclear energy market. So I think there's, in, in a way, you know, the nuclear energy partnership that hasn't been realized is a sort of microcosm of the larger U.S.-India partnership and its promise. Um, but, you know, just India alone is uh, commercially uh, a giant market, and um, we have uh, worked really hard to try to uh, advance uh, 
the, uh, the, the ball in India. Uh, we just took the most recent of a dozen trade missions um, before the, the, uh, the, the lockdown began in, in, Febu in February, March. And really, you know, we are down to a, a, an issue over uh, liability that arose with India's approval in 2010 of a liability law that departed from global norms and its commitment to follow them. Uh, I think that, you know, what is required here, as always in the U.S.-India relationship, is, is leadership from the heads of both uh, countries. Um, and I hope Heritage will continue to provide important thought leadership on this. Thank, uh, thank you, Ted. That was uh, really a very important perspective, I think, for everyone to hear. Uh, as, as you noted, you know, the majority of discussions about the nuclear deal do tend to focus on the strategic. And those of us in this arena don't always hear uh, the, ind the industry perspective as much and frankly don't hear about the ongoing challenges uh, for civil nuclear cooperation including the um, liability issues and that's something maybe we can drill down to uh, a little bit more during q a uh, because it is of, of interest to us at heritage and i think the the wider audience uh, both of our uh, first two guests had some high praise for our, our third guest it may have sounded like they were putting him up on a pedestal but if anything, they, they may have been understating matters. You know, Ashley Tellis has been uh, probably the most influential voice on India-US relations in Washington for the past 15 to 20 years, and has been a mentor, I would argue, to almost everyone working on India-US relations, uh, even when he doesn't know it. Um, Dr. Ashley Tellis really needs no introduction, but he is uh, the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs, and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, he's formerly served as a senior advisor to the US ambassador at the embassy in New Delhi, served on the National Security Council staff as special assistant to President George W. Bush, so was there on the ground during um, civil nuclear deal, and senior director for strategic planning in Southwest Asia. So with that, uh, Dr. Ashley, tell us, let's bring you live here on the webcam and um, looking forward to your remarks. There he is. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me to this uh, to this discussion with two very dear friends, both Rich and Ted have been co-conspirators uh, in the work that we've done over the last two decades in, in building the U.S.-India uh, relationship. And I remember very fondly, uh, particularly uh, during Rich's time in Delhi, that we really saw the flowering of the bilateral relationship in ways that was simply impossible to imagine uh, when I was in Delhi, uh, you know, in, from 2001 to 2003. So uh, thank you, Rich, for your own uh, for your own contributions to this ongoing endeavor, and of course to Ted for giving us all the support that we needed from business and industry when we were trying to get uh, you know the civil nuclear deal through. I'm not sure I'm deserving of all the compliments that have been uh, paid to me, and I must warn your listeners that it only goes downhill uh, from here on. But let me offer a few thoughts, uh, you know, to sort of tie together some threads uh, that came up in the conversation. 
I think Rich did a phenomenal job in reminding us of context uh, because we oftentimes tend to look at a big, bold initiative like the Civil Nuclear Agreement uh, as if it was, uh, you know, the goddess Athena uh, coming out full-fledged, you know, from the head of Zeus uh, one fine morning. And we forget that there was an entire prehistory that brought the United States to that moment when we thought it was just right uh, to engage in such a revolution initiative. And I think if you look at momentous uh, events in our own country's history, like for example, you know, Nixon's uh, visit to China, uh, the transformation of the US-India relationship, they do share this prehistory and you can, looking backwards, identify important points where evolutions took place that made the country as it were ready uh, you know, to embark on, on these big transformations. So the context is really important. Uh, when one looks back 20 years later, uh, I ask myself very often, you know, what is it that motivated us to embark on this journey, to do something so dramatic? And there's really only one answer that seems satisfactory. I mean, there are many components to that answer and I'll develop some of them, but the, the key objective was really to build a new partnership with India at a time when the world was proving to be extremely challenging with the rise of new powers and the absolute necessity for countries like the United States to forge uh, partnerships with, country, with countries you know, that were important, but where good partnerships had eluded us in the past while at the same time strengthening our pre-existing partners with, with friends and allies. And of all the countries in Asia, I think the one country that stood out uh, most clearly uh, as offering the potential for this new partnership was India. Because in many ways, India represents, uh, you know, an alternative universality to China. It's a developing country, it's a non-Western country, uh, and yet it's a democratic country and it, is also a liberal country, or at least it aspires to be. And all these elements really became extremely critical, uh, particularly to President Bush. And I remember in the early days when he would frequently sort of utter the phrase, you know, one billion people in a democracy, isn't that something? I mean, he said that on several occasions. And I think the point that Rich made earlier is a point that we ought to sort of remember that geopolitics of course drove a lot of our calculations there's no doubt about that but what gave the geopolitics a sort of animating quality a vivifying quality was our admiration for india's democracy a country that protected its liberal politics despite severe heterogeneity uh, large uh, sections of mass poverty uh, and yet sort of, you know, stood the course quite resolutely. And we saw in this country uh, a, a partner that we ought to have, particularly in, in terms of balancing China. Now, when we thought of balancing, we didn't think of it in some mechanistic fashion. We didn't think of propping India up as some sort of a counterweight. Rather, I think we recognized that India had its own security interests that it wanted to protect with China. It saw the need to maintain an open multipolarity in Asia that would be respectful of different countries' aspirations, 
And that was precisely the same objective that the United States had in Asia. We wanted to create a context and environment where countries of different stripes could flourish without coercion, without pressure. And we thought it was really important that a large country like India uh, become part of the US circle of friends and partners uh, rather than outside. Now, unfortunately, during the Cold War, that ambition, which by the way, was also Nehru and Truman's ambition uh, at the time of India's independence. Uh, during the Cold War, that ambition was never realized. And so after the Cold War, successive American presidents, uh, actually starting with, starting with uh, Bill Clinton uh, in the 1990s, uh, tried to rebuild uh, this relationship with India. But it was impossible to make the kinds of transformations that finally occurred in the Bush administration. But they did set important building blocks. And uh, the shift uh, towards dehyphenation was a very important building block. And so by the time we come to 9-11, the post 9-11 world, even though the United States goes back to reconstructing a relationship with Pakistan under pressures of necessity, we never forgot that the prize was India. And uh, the civil nuclear agreement, in a sense, makes that prize possible. And why do I say that? I say that because it does one very important thing. Uh, actually, two. It exercises the demons of the past. Uh, in the past, India was deeply fearful that the secret American agenda in South Asia was to essentially uh, balance India by propping up a weaker state like Pakistan. And after 1971, Indian fears actually uh, became more acute because our own growing ties with China uh, were perceived in Delhi as providing additional and more powerful breaks on India's rise. And so between our past relations with Pakistan and our past relations with China, there was a real anxiety in New Delhi that the United States and India were on opposite sides of the geopolitical fence. And exercising these demons, uh, these fears, which sort of weighed heavily on policymakers in India was absolutely critical. And I don't think it could have been done anymore by cheap signaling. It had to be done by what political scientists call costly signaling, which is we had to bear certain burdens to show that we were serious about our desire for this new relationship. And the nuclear deal essentially provides the costly signal because the US pays a price. It pays a price in terms of its own domestic politics, where we had to work with varying constituencies across the political spectrum. We had to work across the branches of government. We had to uh, you know, fight against entrenched ideas about the, uh, the non-proliferation regime and its consequences, and so on and so forth. And of course, we had to pay an international price, where we had to convince our partners and countries who were not particularly sympathetic to our objectives in the NSG uh, to join us in this quest. Uh, so there was a lot of heavy lifting uh, that the United States did. Um, and, and it conveyed to India, I think in ways that Indians uh, policymakers to this day have not forgotten, that the US was serious about this new relationship and was willing to walk the extra mile. And so that I think was a very, very important uh, element uh, in, in the exorcism process. Uh, the second element was the desire that we had to actually aid the rise of Indian power. And we were doing this uh, in, in ways that went beyond the nuclear deal, because after 1974, the US put in place 
an entire regime of export controls where nuclear export controls were at the center, but from that center radiated additional export controls, uh, dual use technologies, advanced civilian technologies, and so on and so forth. And so if one wanted to aid the rise of Indian power, it became obvious that we would have to give India far greater access uh, than we did in the past. And the Indians certainly wanted that. In fact, one of their biggest gripe was that US export controls frequently prevented them uh, from acquiring the technologies that they thought were necessary for their own ascendancy. And so in taking the bull by the horns, in sort of accepting the reality that India is a de facto nuclear weapon state, and uh, preventing that from becoming a hurdle, instead overcoming that hurdle, and giving India access to a whole range of technologies that previously were simply out of bounds, I think the US sort of confirmed those costly signals. Uh, the US confirmed that it was willing to bear that price uh, to aid India's rise. Now, no one was under the illusion that India would rise because of what the US did. India will rise or fail to rise because of India's own choices. But the decisions that we make could help in important ways. And I think over this period from 1998 to the present day, uh, the US has consistently made decisions that have been supportive of India. And I think that in many ways reflects uh, the context within which the civil nuclear agreement occurred. And so when you look back now, 15 years later and ask, you know, was this successful? I think the, the, there are two tests. Uh, the first test is, is our relationship with India qualitatively different uh, from the kind we had prior to 1998, which is when the train began to leave the station in terms of building this new partnership? And I think you would have to be, you know, sort of intellectually blind uh, not to accept the proposition that this relationship has transformed fundamentally compared to the pre-98 era. And the second test, of course, is to ask Indian policymakers. Uh, whether they see uh, the nuclear deal with all its limitations. And I take seriously, uh, you know, uh, Ted's uh, critique of our lack of achievements, particularly in the nuclear space. And I'm sure in the Q&A, we'll come back to addressing that issue because it is important and should be addressed. Uh, but, but the fact is, Indian policymakers today will have no hesitation in saying that they look at the United States with new eyes precisely because of what the nuclear deal did uh, for them in terms of the doors that it opened uh, for India's own integration, first into the global nuclear order, but then into the larger international system as a uh, ascending power that enjoys the support of the United States. And for that acknowledgement to be made by Indian policymakers today from both sides of the aisle in India, to my mind is uh, the second, and perhaps in some ways, the more consequential test of the success of the agreement. So thank you, Jeff, for inviting me, and I'm delighted to be here with you. Well, thank, thank you, Ashley. And I, I'll invite uh, Rich and Ted to rejoin us now for this part of the discussion. Uh, what, a, what a rich and, and frankly uh, informative half hour of talks uh, feel vindicated in choosing our panelists this morning because this, frankly, is uh, already exceeding my expectations. Um, 
We've got a great question. Uh, there's more coming in now from the audience. Um, I just wanted to give a, a quick plug as we talk about what a journey it was here in the US to get the nuclear deal done. I also want to note there were, there were times where it was also a contentious journey in India. Um, and you know, even though there's a consensus that India benefited uh, tremendously from the agreement, there were many opponents at the time. And maybe uh, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh deserves a shout out because he took what may have been his riskiest and most controversial vote in parliament in order to get the nuclear deal passed. Um, first question from uh, the audience was, was a good one. Um, we, there have been many steps taken since that uh, nuclear deal was first agreed in, in 2005, uh, both uh, at, on the domestic side, but also internationally to welcome India sort of into this club of accepted powers. There's one step that's still outstanding, and that is uh, the nuclear suppliers group. Uh, you know, the U.S. has been uh, supporting India's entry into this body, the nuclear suppliers group, for many years now. And for many years, it has been seemingly blocked uh, by Beijing, whose formal position is at least that, well, if we're going to consider India as a member, then, then Pakistan should also get due consideration, uh, despite, uh, I think many would agree, a, a quite abysmal nuclear nonproliferation record. Uh, but I wonder if um, any of you had any thoughts on uh, both the prospects for India to join the NSG, but also what what difference will that make? What are the practical implications of India joining the NSG? What can't it do now, or what is illegal now that would become uh, more normalized were India to join the NSG? Anyone who has thoughts is welcome. Well, let me let me get. I'll, I'll turn it over to you guys in a second. I just very quickly. Um, it, it is important, and we we continue to push for India's membership into the NSG. It's part of the international export control regimes, which we think India should be a part of. I think there are several questions about whether it's possible. I, I mentioned first U.S. power and influence internationally and whether we actually can do it uh, ourselves the way we did it in the 2005 and 2006 period. When we worked with the international community, we were a leader in the international community. Yes, we broke some China periodically, um, you know, the invasion of Iraq, uh, et cetera. But we were generally viewed as someone who shaped and, and helped build the international community. Uh, the institutions of the international community, especially on matters of uh, nuclear nonproliferation. So if we had a good argument, people listened to us. That is not the case today. That's that's the first issue. The second issue is I think it's I think the objections are far broader than Chinese objections. And yes, there are the range of countries that are nonproliferation kind of hawks. Uh, Austria, Australia, Ireland, you can kind of go through the list. Let me add a new country that will come maybe not as a surprise, but hopefully people understand the shifting geopolitics that we're in. But let me add Russia to that list of countries that is not jumping up and down for India to be a member of the nuclear suppliers group, which frankly makes it an even stronger case for a US-India partnership. 
Jeff, I would just add, I agree with uh, what Richard said completely. We will continue to press uh, the members uh, to admit India, but I'm not sanguine that these efforts will bear fruit anytime soon. But in practical terms, it's really a question of whether India becomes part of the rulemaking on nuclear exports or not. And I think the one argument that we need to deploy more clearly is that as India continues to expand its own nuclear R&D, as it starts pushing the envelope, particularly with respect to expanding the thorium cycle, uh, India will be capable of developing technologies and exporting technologies which may not necessarily conform to existing rules if it has had no part in making them. And so what we began in 2005, if not before, must really be brought to completion because India today gets all the benefits of NSG membership, except for the capacity to participate in rulemaking. And so it is a logical next step uh, to bring India into the tent fully. I would simply add that that India does have tremendous potential to be a nuclear supplier. They they are perf performing you know R and D uh, in many areas and have so much to offer a global supply chain that uh, in the way of of low cost manufacturing, high quality engineering, that it it seems logical that they should somehow be integrated into the rulemaking body. Hmm. No, that's yeah, that's some great uh, thoughts. And Ted, while while we have you, I thought um, I wanted to ask you in, in layman's terms, why has this uh, liability question been such a sticking point? I feel like we've been negotiating this for ten years. I feel like every two or three years, uh, you know, a U.S. firm signs another MOU with India that suggests they're on the verge of uh, breakthrough on this matter. Uh, what what is the sticking point, and what is it going to take to um, pass this hurdle? The, the sticking point, in in a nutshell, is the global uh, liability regime. To the extent there is is one, is founded on a principle of channeling liability to the operator of the plant. This allows, uh, from an economic standpoint, the the cost of liability to be uh, priced by a, a, a limited number of players in a market. They can get insurance that covers their supply chain. The alternative, if it's not channeled exclusively and absolutely to the plant operator, is all of the suppliers, the hundreds or even thousands of them, must individually weigh the cost of, 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 of the risk and get liability indefinitely even though they have no role in the operation of the plant and the maintenance of the plant. And this, you know, from an economic standpoint, causes